Now, would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 3. We come to our final study in this short epistle. So Titus chapter 3, and we're looking at verse 9 to the end of the chapter, but let's just read from verse 8, verse that we looked at last week. So Titus chapter 3 and verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, seeing that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his own inspired word. This morning we come to our 11th and last study in this letter of Paul to Titus. We want to look at verses 9 through to 15. Uh, The verses from 12 through to 15 contain Paul's greetings, and I'll leave you to look at that for yourself. Now, you'll remember that Paul had visited Crete as part of his missionary journeys, and the gospel had been preached, people had been converted, and churches had been planted. And it seems he left his young uh, associate and protege, Titus, on the island to, as chapter 1 and verse 5 says, to straighten out what was left unfinished, to put what remained into order. That's the title for this that I've given to this series of sermons, Straightening Out the Church, borrowed from chapter 1 and verse 5. Titus had been left on Crete to ground these believers in the truth and to encourage them to live a consistent godly life. And so he writes this letter to Titus to encourage him in this task. Now there are two ways to treat an illness or deal with a problem. One is positive and the other is negative. The carrot and the stick, uh, two wishes and a star, a teacher would say. As far as health is concerned, you fight the disease and you encourage healthy habits. As far as theology is concerned, you teach truth and you expose error. Now, in our last study in verses 3 to 8, Paul gives very positive instruction on the gospel itself as an incentive to promote godly living. But in this last section, in verses 9 through to 11, he issues a a warning. He gives a negative rebuke. And so from verses 9 to 11, I want you to notice four things. First of all, the teaching exposed, the teaching that was threatening the church in verse 9. Look at verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. After telling Titus to insist on certain things in verse 8, the positive, he now tells him to avoid certain things in verse 9, the negative. 
And what he tells them to avoid is a certain kind of teaching that was popular in New Testament times, which involved an overemphasis and an exaggerated approach to Jewish history, to Old Testament history. He speaks of foolish controversies. The authorized version says foolish questions. The word means contentious or confrontational debate. It could be translated as speculations. Now, of course, Paul isn't prohibiting theological controversy. Jesus himself was a theological controversialist. He was in constant debate with the religious leaders of his day. Paul had earlier urged Titus to appoint elders who were able to refute those who opposed sound doctrine. Christians generally, and teachers in particular, need to be able to argue their position, to defend the truth of God's word. Now, what Paul is prohibiting here is foolish controversies. That is mindless or pointless controversies, arguing over nothing and everything, having wild speculations about uh, exaggerated interpretations of the word of God, a pointless and a fruitless discussion, foolish controversies, genealogies. This gives us an insight into what the particular Uh, controversy was on the island of Crete that had taken root in the churches. Genealogies fascinated the Jews. The big thing was to trace yourself back to Abraham and back to Adam and all kinds of fanciful and allegorical interpretations were, were made concerning those genealogies. We know that there were two ancient Jewish books of genealogies that traced the descendants of Adam down to the 70 who came into Egypt. And so if you could trace yourself, your your family, back to the 70, you could then trace yourself back to Adam. And it seems that these teachers had come into the church and they were exaggerating and uh, allegorizing the Old Testament in order to fit with their speculations and their understanding of these genealogies. Foolish controversies genealogies, and dissensions and quarrels about the law. John Stott translates that as quibbles and squabbles about the law. In other words, these people had a very pharisaical understanding of the law. They believed that the Gentile converts in the island of Crete ought to follow the Jewish understanding of the law and not only the rules and regulations about circumcision but about special days, special diets and and special duties. The Jews had developed 613 laws that interpreted the Old Testament law. And those laws became as binding upon the Jewish conscience as the Old Testament itself. Jesus called them the traditions of men. So there was this overemphasis on the obscurity of the Old Testament at the expense of the clarity of the new. Now, Christians tend to err in one or two ways as far as the Old Testament is concerned. Some act as if it had never been written, and as a result, they have an impoverished view of God because they do not read the New Testament with the background of the Old Testament. 
But there are other people who do not read the Old Testament at all in the light of the New. The Old Testament was preparatory. It was, by its own witness, uh, preparing, laying a foundation for the coming of Christ. And it had its fulfillment in the coming of Christ. Paul describes himself in Second Corinthians 3 as a minister of the New Covenant. New Covenant. As Augustine said, the new is in the old concealed, but the old is in the new revealed. And we have to read our Old Testaments with New Testament eyes. Beware and suspicious of people who are stuck in the Old Testament, who speak about women wearing trousers, men's apparel, or um, put a prohibition on eating sausages, who quibble and squabble over obscure and unclear interpretations of the Old Testament. That's what was happening on the island of Crete, and it was paralyzing the churches there. This teaching, of course, became downright dangerous because it it blossomed into a theology where they insisted that you had to follow these Old Testament laws and the Jewish interpretation of these laws in order to be a Christian. Their teaching exposed foolish speculations, genealogies, quarrels, and quibbles about the law. Secondly, notice the consequences explained. Look at verses 9 and 10. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Paul says such teaching is unprofitable, worthless, and divisive. In other words, it's fruitless, it produces nothing, and it's divisive, fruitless, unprofitable, and worthless. He says at the end of verse 9. The authorized version says unprofitable and vain. In other words, it produces nothing. It's fruitless. It gets you nowhere. Now look back at verse 8, where we have the conclusion to that great section on the gospel and what the gospel is. These things, verse 8, are excellent and profitable for people. The teaching of the truth of the gospel builds up and leads to godliness. It bears fruit in individual lives. A fruitful ministry will manifest itself in the congregation devoting themselves to good works. And that stands to reason, doesn't it? The word is crucial and critical for spiritual fruitfulness. Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17 that they might be sanctified, that they might be made holy, that they might be changed and and transformed into the image of God. And he says that the agent in accomplishing that sanctification is the word of God. He prays, sanctify them by the truth. And then he adds, your word is truth. It is the truth that is the agent of change to bring about godliness. You see that in Romans 12, uh, 1 and 2. Uh, Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I like the way J.B. Phillips 
translates that in his paraphrase. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed, be changed. And how is a person transformed and changed? By the renewing of his mind. It is God's truth entering the intelligence that affects the change that leads to godliness. It is the word of God itself that is the agent of change. And if you want to grow as a Christian, you've got to apply your mind to Scripture. Franz Havener says that sin will either keep you from the Bible or the Bible will keep you from sin. On the other hand, That kind of reckless, speculative preaching, exaggerated interpretations, produces nothing. It doesn't bring about godliness. It's fruitless. This kind of preaching that tries to determine the exact events that surround the second coming or spiritualizes the tent pegs of the tabernacle, what does that do? What fruit does that produce in the life of the believer? It scratches their itchy ears. It satisfies their curiosity. But it doesn't produce godliness. True preaching, true exposition creates a hunger and thirst for righteousness. So that's the first thing there. This kind of preaching is fruitless, unprofitable, and worthless. Secondly, it's divisive. Look at what he says there in verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing to do with him. Now most commentators agree that the subjects of verse 10 are exactly the same subjects as verse 9. That the divisive person is the person who quarrels and quibbles about genealogies and wild speculations about the law. That kind of teaching, says Paul, leads to division. Now, the authorized version translates verse 10 as a man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition reject. Now, that is quite wrong. The word heretic had not assumed that meaning that we attribute to it today. The word meant party. It was used in the New Testament to refer to groups of people, the party of the Sadducees, the party of the Pharisees. That's the word, party or school. It came to represent in the early church those who caused divisions and factions within the church. It could be translated as contentious, divisive or fracturous. So one of the results of this petty speculation, this allegorical kind of preaching, was to divide the churches on the island of Crete. You see, one of the purposes of preaching is to promote um, unity. Do you remember Paul's uh, words in Ephesians 4 and verse 11? It was he who gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets and some to be evangelists and some to be pastor-teachers to prepare God's people for works of service that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. That teaching, sound doctrine, leads to unity. That's the mistake of the ecumenical movement. The ecumenical movement says you've got to dumb down, you've got to take it to the lowest possible common denominator so that we can all get together on that. No, says Paul, you don't dumb down, you teach up. 
that you teach sound doctrine and that as people grow in their faith, they reach the unity of their faith. They, they love one another as they ought to love one another. The purpose of biblical instruction is not simply to bring us to maturity individually, but to promote unity corporately. And we have got to take seriously the commands of Christ for unity. He said to his disciples in John 13, A new command I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. He prayed to his father in John 17 that all of them may be one father just as you are in me and I am in you. That the unity in the Godhead is to be reflected in the church. And to divide churches over wild speculations and trivial interpretations is to go against the mind and the will of Christ. Of course it's deciding what is trivial and what is fundamental, that's difficult. I heard uh, of a man who saw another man who was just about to jump off a bridge to end his life. And he ran up to him to try and restrain him. And he says, don't you believe in God? And the man who's about to jump says, I do. And he says, what a coincidence, so do I. Are you a Muslim or a Christian? And he says, I'm a Christian. He says, what a coincidence, so am I. Are you Catholic or Protestant? He says, I'm Protestant. What a coincidence, so am I. Are you Anglican or nonconformist? He says, I'm nonconformist. He says, the other man said, what a coincidence, so am I. Are you Baptist or Presbyterian? He says, I'm, I'm Baptist. He says, what a coincidence, so am I. Are you General Baptist or Reformed Baptist? He says, I'm a Reformed Baptist. He says, what a coincidence, so am I. Are you amillennial or premillennial? And he says, I'm premillennial. He says, what a coincidence, so am I. Are you pre-trib or post-trib? Pre-tribulation or post-tribulation? He says, I'm post-tribulation. And he pushed the man. The other man pushed him off the cliff and said, jump, you heretic. It's not always easy to determine what we should divide over. I I said before in a recent Bible study on the Tuesday night that Brian uh, Edwards, in his little book, helpfully uh, categorizes truth for us. He says you have essential truth, things that you need to believe to be a true Christian. The Trinity the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the substitutionary death of Christ, justification, justification by faith alone and Christ alone. Then you have important truth, things that are important to us about the baptism of the Spirit and when it occurs, um, the ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, the nature of the church, how the church is ordered. And then you have secondary truth, um, things that that are are secondary and ought not to divide us. Things like the doctrine of the the second coming, uh, things like Bible versions, those things. They they shouldn't divide us. We ought not to allow those things to divide us. And then he said you have phantom truth, and phantom truth are things that we insist on, traditions that actually have no basis, no warrant in the word of God at all. So there's a denomination in America, known as the Black Bumper Mennonites. And so when chrome was produced in the 1950s and bumpers on cars were made of chrome, they thought it was worldly. 
And so they, they separated, they broke away, and they formed this denomination, the Black Bumper Mennonites. That's wrong. That's sinful. That's dividing on phantom truth. Divide, to divide churches over trivial and secondary issues is not only to go against the command of Christ and the prayer of Christ, but the will of Christ as expressed in that prayer. That kind of trivial interpretation promoted on the island of Crete led to increasing division in the church. So the consequences explain this kind of fruitless, pointless teaching led to fruitlessness and divisiveness. It led to division and ungodliness. The teaching exposed, the consequences explained, and thirdly then, the response expected. Paul gives two pieces of advice in dealing with this kind of trivial emphasis and the people who adopt it. He says, avoid it in verse 9 and deal with it in verse 10. Avoid it, he says in verse 9. Avoid foolish controversies. The authorized version says, avoid foolish questions. The word means to turn away, to turn around, to purposefully turn away from someone or something. Don't get involved with these destructive teachers, he says. Leave them alone. Don't get entangled in fruitless discussions. Keep away from them and certainly don't give them a platform to promote their ideas in the church. I know one pastor who told me that he likes, in his own words, someone weird and wonderful to come to preach every now and then to stimulate and stir up the congregation. Well, to give a platform to that kind of nonsense is not only crazy, but runs contrary to the command of Paul issued here. Any faithful minister is duty-bound to protect his congregation. Indeed, back in chapter 1, he urges Titus to preach against such nonsense. You see that in verse 13. Titus chapter 1 and verse 13. The testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So that's the first thing then. Don't get involved with them. Avoid that kind of thing, he says. There is something corrupting uh, about that kind of teaching. Better Better to stay away from it. Avoid it, he says at verse 9. And deal with it, he says in verse 10. Look at verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Paul encourages Titus to implement some kind of formal discipline against this divisive person. So let's think about this for a moment. Not only does Paul uh, consider immorality and heresy as grounds for discipline, but also divisiveness. The consequences of bickering and fighting over trivial matters were so serious that Paul uh, prescribes a serious solution. Deal with it, he says to Titus. Discipline them. And it's clear that Paul has in mind the formal discipline of the church. Now, they're not being disciplined 
for their wild and speculative interpretations of Scripture, but they are being disciplined for causing division in the church. Paul says such a person is to be officially warned twice by the church. Twice, I think, to show the church's resolution against that kind of thing, but also to show its patience. And after that, if the warning goes unheeded, he says they are to be separated off, have nothing to do with, the, uh, with them, with him, with the person who is promoting such a thing. The authorized version says reject, and that undoubtedly means to reject formally from the congregation. The offender must be separated for his schismatic behavior. By what pain churches would have been spared if they had heeded this advice. Formally warn a divisive man twice and then remove him from the church. And that advice is repeated in scripture. Now, you see how serious Paul regarded this. Do you see what he's saying? That a man who has taken up with Wobbles and quibbles about secondary and irrelevant interpretations avoid such a person. But if he begins to threaten the unity of the church, you've got to remove that man from the church after warning him twice. Disunity and disharmony are serious breaches of God's design for the church. We have got to work at unity and seek to understand in terms of doctrine, what is fundamental and what is secondary. So the response expected. Avoid such a man, verse 9, and deal with such a man in verse 10. The teaching exposed, the consequences explained, the response expected, and the character exhibited. Look at verse 11. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, He is self-condemned. Now, it may seem to us very harsh to discipline somebody for simply being awkward and divisive. But over the years, I've got fed up with people who will excuse sin and sinful behavior on the basis of personality. Well, you know, that's just me. That's what I'm like. I'm a bit sharp. I'm a bit edgy at times. I'm a, a bit abrupt. But Paul sees it as something more serious than that. He says such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. The word warped there, subverted as the authorized version has it, means twisted. William Henriksen calls him a spiritual screwball. There's something fundamentally wrong with his character. If he's always stirring up the vision over nothing, he is self-condemned. And by his stubborn refusal to repent, he's displaying his true character, which is the character of a non-Christian. You see, Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. And if a man continues in immorality and does not repent, it's questionable whether that man has been converted. If he persists in a heretical understanding of the word of God, something that runs contrary to scripture, it's questionable whether or not he has ever been converted. We would all agree with that. But Paul goes on and says, if he has a divisive spirit 
and continues to stir up dissension and difficulty in the church, you have to question whether or not he's converted at all. Turn back with me to Galatians uh, chapter 5 and verse 20. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 20. Here Paul is contrasting the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, in verse 20, verse 19, let's read from verse 19. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, yes. Impurity, yes. Sensuality, yes. Idolatry, most certainly. Sorcery, yes. But now listen. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, and then drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now listen. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom. So, orgies, yes. Sensuality, idolatry, yes. But enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions... You see what Paul is saying. That person is not converted. These are the works of the flesh. These are the manifestations of the, of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit, he goes on to say, is love, love, joy, peace, patience, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The works of the flesh, the marks of the unregenerate man, are divisiveness and division. Of course, a Christian can fall into these sins. But if he is not repentant, it is questionable whether or not he has been converted. Sometimes I hear Christians speak of other Christians in such dismissive terms. I have to say to myself, I wonder if that person is truly converted and knows anything about the grace of God in their hearts. Now, obviously, if your convictions are such and the, the, the issue in hand is, is fundamental and, and essential, that's a different thing. But to divide over quibbles and squabbles about nothing, Paul is saying, and this is how serious this is, it's hard to know if you're even converted. Such a person... He says, is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. The teaching exposed, foolish controversies, genealogies, and arguments and quarrels about the law. The consequences uh, explained. Such teaching is fruitless, verse 9, and divisive, verse 10. The response expected, avoid it. Uh, says Paul, distance yourself from the person and then deal with it. So avoid it and deal with it, he says. Discipline, discipline such a person because a person who's behaving in that way ought not to be in the church. The character exhibited uh, that such a person reveals an unregenerate uh, nature. You see how, how powerful and how important Unity is when it comes to the church.
Amen.